to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant, and they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. The king said to the woman, go to your house. I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone has anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the name Yahweh your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. And he said, as Yahweh lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. The woman said, please, let your servant speak a word to the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I've come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I'll speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. Yahweh your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. And so the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, behold now, I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart 
in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we are gathered here to hear your voice. Our God in heaven, we gather here to sing praises to you, to set our requests before you, to be reminded again of your goodness and mercy, to be encouraged and nourished and strengthened for the battles within and the battles without. Father, we ask this morning that you would condescend to meet with us once again, that you would draw near to your people, hurting and happy. We ask that you would come and meet with us, that your spirit would speak power and authority into our lives, that we would repent joyfully unto the newness of life, that we would trust you all the more, all again, and we ask, Lord, that you would empower us, enable us to walk in new obedience, the kind of obedience that only you and your spirit can give. That is our request this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name, and all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. Chapter 14 picks up right where chapter 13 leaves off, to no surprise. But if I were going to title this chapter, I would title it, Let the Scheming Continue. This is an incredible insight into the nature of human relationships. We've seen kind of dynamics within the family as a significant outpouring of David's moral and kingly failure in his episode with Bathsheba and the response and scheming that he sets the tone for in that event. We've seen the devastation of brother killing brother, of brother violently and vilely harming sister. We have seen all of the sin that began in David's heart being poured out in his life and in the lives of his family members. And the ruin continues. And in response, rather than pursuing truth, rather than pursuing honest relationships with integrity, with hope, with true confession, Instead, they're still warring with each other. In some cases, politely. In many cases, in fraudulent ways. Misrepresenting their intentions. You're going to see rue after rue after rue, scheme after scheme after scheme, plot and manipulation after plotful manipulation. People become pawns. People become casualties. People become anything but people in the eyes of the ones moving the pieces, coordinating the schemes. Deception and lies become clothing for the people who walk in them. 
And this was promised. God told David that a consequence of his sin all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, God reminded and told that he will allow trouble to rise up within his own family, within his own dynasty. And that in that, there would be strife and malice, confusion and chaos. So as we come to this chapter, we must remember that the scheming continues. And scheming will be represented here as wisdom. You'll see the word wisdom in this text but it's never meant in beauty. It's never meant in truth. The scheming that is called wisdom here is absolute folly. We will also see throughout the events of this chapter and others that follow that manipulation will be presented as ministry, as service, as unto the Lord. You'll see the Lord's name invoked blasphemously, maliciously, and manipulation is never a ministry. It's never ministry in a marriage. It's never ministry in a household. It's certainly never ministry in the household of faith. We will also see murder and manslaughter conflated with each other, set up as equal vile. We're going to see a lot of folly. We're going to see a lot of scheming. And so one of the ways you can help yourself walk through this chapter is to understand that everything is not as they appear. Those who appear lowly are acting in pride those who appear grief-stricken are actually filled, tickled with glee. Nothing is as it appears. Be very careful not to take things at face value in this chapter. Even verse 1 begins shrouded. Let me show you. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart... Then we have, went out to Absalom. And that sounds like fondness to us, right? We, we say this in our culture all the time. Oh, my thoughts and prayers go out to you. Like, no, send your prayers to God, not to the person that you're thinking about. And every time somebody's like, oh, Oh, I was, I was thinking about you, and my thoughts go to you. And I'm always like, like, if that were true, like you'd be walking down the street and get hit in the face with somebody else's thoughts, right? Like we treat this like it's this mystical power of positive thinking. Like, no, prayers go upward, and thoughts are inward. They don't depart from you and land on another person unless you, wait for it, Communicate it. Write it. If you're like Ed Fish, you fill out a card an hour and send it to people. You email, you text. Older folks, there's this thing on your phone that allows, no? All right. You talk. You knock on the door. 
you open the bedroom and you speak and you interact, you embrace, you can talk with hugs, yes? But just sitting in bed thinking about somebody doesn't produce a change in them. It certainly can produce a change in you, but we equate them and conflate them, and we shouldn't. So here, we have to, to understand what does it mean that David's heart, the king's heart, is going out to Absalom. Well, you have two choices in the Hebrew. You can say his heart goes out and comes upon Absalom, meaning he's thinking about Absalom. And usually there's a kind of a sense of fondness, right? When we say, I was thinking about you, we're not saying, I was mulling over my grudge against you, right? That's not how we talk about this. We would say, I'm remembering, or I'm thinking about, or I'm longing and wanting things for you. But there's no verb in Hebrew that means long for. English, that's an easy communicator. But when we see this going out, we must understand how is this verb used in Scripture? And the answer is, it's very rarely, kind of if ever, upon someone expressing a fondness. It's almost always, if not always, you go out in hostility against someone. You'll see this over and over and over in the scripture. You will see, for example, look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 7. There's a whole handful of these. I won't give you all of them. But in Deuteronomy 28, 7, we read, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. Meaning, they shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. In other words, they'll come out unified against you in battle, and as a result of the battle, they'll leave in every direction. But this is not fondness. This is combat. This is war. So you'll see this phrase, go out, go out, go out. And it means go out against. So when we read here in verse 1, that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart was against Absalom. Because he knows that David is critically upset because, you know, premeditated murder within his family. And the murderer needs justice and the blood of the brother who was killed cries out for justice and it's David who is king and responsible for the execution of justice so Joab wants to find a way for Absalom to come home which sounds noble doesn't it I want the estranged son to come home, right? We instantly, especially in our church and tradition, think a lot about Luke 15 and the, and the prodigal sons, right? And we think about the son who's far away, and we know the father's heart is that he would return. He was foolish and worldly, but he wasn't a murderer. 
in need of justice. Here, Joab is trying to garner political power. This is palace-level scheming. We've had a TV show recently that I don't recommend you watch, but the, thro- the name of the show helps us understand the happenings of this moment. It's called The Game of Thrones. And it tells you everything that's in the show. People being cruel and evil and murderous to gain power, to see power move from one place to another. It's filled with grotesque nudity and all these other things. But it helps us understand the nature of politics in a palace. That one person can sit on a throne. And if other people want that power, they need to position themselves to move the pieces on a chessboard to capture the king so that he can be replaced. You know, with them. Joab does not love David. Joab loves Joab. Joab sees an opportunity to gain power. So he's going to use people like pawns to sacrifice them for his own manipulative sake. So Joab knows that David's heart is against Absalom. He's hostile to him. And if David was somehow longing, as the NIV translates it, then it means that all of Joab's maneuvering is completely unnecessary. All he's got to do is nudge him to do the thing he wants to do. But this whole chapter is about the opposite of that. He's trying to trick, conjole, manipulate, prey on emotions so that David will do what Joab wants because he doesn't have the power to dictate it, so he tries to find the power to accomplish it through these manipulative schemes. This chapter will purport to be filled with wisdom. And we will see pragmatic, air quotes, wisdom. We'll see discerning, air quotes, wisdom. And we will see folly represented as, air quotes, wisdom. But none of it is wise. And none of it is holy. And none of it walks in the beauty and power of the Hesed way that, that should be overflowing among them. So things are not as they appear. The truth is Joab is against David because David is against Absalom. And Joab sees Absalom as a tool to leverage for his own power. That's what's happening. So how does this unfold? Verse two, Joab sends for a woman of Tekoa, living kind of in the, in the area outside Jerusalem, you know, a dozen miles away or so, and brought from there this, see the word, what kind of woman is she? A, a wise woman, feel free to air quote it, because she's going to lie to the king in his own courtroom. Advisable? Perjury? Not good. So here's a wise woman, not wise, but winsome and persuasive perhaps. 
never, ever expect that all of winsomeness is truthfulness. You can get a very lucrative career in politics if you are willing to spin a story. Spin is basically highlight the things you shouldn't be looking at and deny the attention for the things that should be looked at. Kids, in your homes, in your relationship with your parents, don't spin your bad behavior. Own it. Confess it. And be reunited in truthful forgiveness. The burden of deception is too heavy. And it's not what your parents want for you. And I promise you, the schemes that you have to employ to defend your own fraud, your own deception, your own lies, is a sinkhole of quicksand. And you will get buried by it. Tell the truth. You will be forgiven. And you will experience love and tenderness and consequence. But the Lord disciplines those he loves. It's not a cruel act to be disciplined. Hey, adults, it's not a cruel act to be disciplined by God. Yield in truthfulness. You can see this wise woman who's persuasive, winsome, but solely not truthful. She's been told here, pretend. It's the opening word. What do I want for you? I want you to pretend. Can you pretend for me? Are you a good actress? Can you sell this idea? Are you a good spin doctor or salesman? Pretend to be a mourner. In order to play that role, you need to put on the right garments. You can't wash or bathe because people who are deeply grieving sometimes don't leave the couch. So come haggard. Come broken. Come with your clothes teared, unshowered, unkempt, smelling, you know, not how you would on a first date. Act like you've been in this condition for a long time. The whole scheme begins with the preying on human compassion. Compassion becomes a tool for deception. Playing on your emotions. Make no mistake, the evening news does this too. Preying on your emotions. This is what I need you to do, Joab tells her. Go to the king and speak thusly to him. The end of verse three should haunt us. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Joab wants to speak but he's too cowardly to confront directly. So he uses an old widow to prey on his emotions, to accomplish his purposes. Is the widow a person in Joab's mind? 
Is David a person in Joab's mind? We as humans are made in the image of God. We are born with innate dignity, immeasurable value. Is anybody being dignified here or valued? The truth values. This doesn't. In other words, Joab writes the script and she gives her lines. So the plot will unfold. Verse four, when the woman of Tekoa comes to the king, she plays the role beautifully. She falls on her face. She pays homage. Do you know what homage is? It's like, I agree that you are exalted and that I am beneath you, below you. Less power, less privilege, probably less money, certainly less fame or influence. When you pay homage, you acknowledge and revere the one to whom you pay homage. You give them ultimate respect. So I ask you, she appears to be paying homage. Is she? No. No. She cries out in a lie. Save me, O king. I'm drowning in the river. Throw me a rope. Is she drowning? Is this any of this real? But it will be real for whom? Yeah. Is David dignified as she lies to his feet? No dignity, no beauty, no truth. This is cruelty. You understand that? This is cruelty. They're emotionally torturing David in one of the most tender places in his heart. Is there any parent who doesn't think about their kids tenderly? Even when you're mad and you can't yet discipline them because you know you will not be in control. You still love them and they're the most tender place in your human heart, true? She's stabbing him in this tender place at the behest of another, knowing it's all a lie. Save me, O king. So here's the king with this poor old woman laying flat on her face, pretending to pay homage to him, and he understands that she's in trouble. That's how he responds to her. Listen to the earnest compassion in David's voice as he talks to this seemingly devastated and grieving woman. What is your trouble? Alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. First heartstring pulled. And your servant had two sons. Did did she say he... She has two sons, like the tense matters here, right? Second heartstring, I, I had two sons, meaning she doesn't have two sons anymore. Something devastating happened. But did it? No, it's all a lie. Things are not as they seem. What's your trouble? I'm a widow, 
husband is dead. Your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. This is Cain and Abel. They're going to use the first reality of the fall of Adam and Eve, where sin goes from separation to murder in a single generation between siblings. She preys on the heartstrings of Genesis 4. They quarreled in a field with one another. The children fight. The siblings fight. Do they do it with their hands at times? Or their teeth? Certainly with their lips and their feet. What stops that from happening in the moment? In the moment they're at each other's throats. In the moment one is wrestling the other to the ground and pinning them. As big brothers do too often. Preying on weakness. Thinking it's strong. Thinking they're awesome and doing it. What stops it? Intervention. The little one squealing to mom. Mom, he's hitting me. Knock it off, Asa. I love you. Boys wrestle, they scrap. Sisters fight and bite at times. I love you. True? A parent, a friend, breaks up the fight, stops it, separates them. Why? So that it doesn't end tragically. They quarreled in the field with one another, and there was no one there to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. He killed his brother. Isn't that the tender place in David's heart? Like, like, like an ice pick, perfectly targeted, strategically cruel to accomplish your purpose. David knows what it is to have one son kill another. But what's the fallout for murder? What's the fallout for manslaughter? What's the fallout? What's the justice for consequence in that situation? The killer is to be tried and executed. This is the rule of governance in Israel. So sacred is a human being that if you take a life unjustly, you are forfeiting your own life. So don't take each other's lives lest your own life be forfeit. One killed the other. Verse seven, and now the whole clan has risen against this whole your servant thing is another way of saying she's speaking. She's talking about herself. Now the whole clan has risen up against me, and they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death. Here, this passionate cry for justice is going to be a pretext for greed. Watch the rest of her story. 
Give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. That is a statement that pretends to be asking for justice, but we get their motive behind what they're saying. And the narrator is the only one telling the truth in this whole deal. And so they would destroy the air also. Two brothers in a field fight. One kills the other. So justice demands that the other one be tried and executed. And if both are killed, then she's a widow. What happens to their land? Someone in their larger clan base, a relative, will gain the property and the cattle and the building and all the wealth. The legacy of that family lineage ends. But it's all about money. How often is that true? This is not just some old story of old people who weren't as smart as us or sophisticated as us. If you really wanted to be vile, you could study the schemes of the Bible. They will work. But they will work for the devastation of your own ruin. Are there any heartstrings left unpulled? God promised David what? A lineage, a house, a dynasty. So you have all these parallels that David has tenderly and agonizingly being dealt with. Some old, some pretty fresh and new. And none of it's true. None of her story is true. We don't even know their husband's really dead. It doesn't matter to Joab. How far is truth from this moment? So here's that situation. And the idea here is that their greed is masked and covered in passionate cry for justice. Y'all, that pattern is still alive today. There are people who gain wealth by crying about injustice. But the wealth that is garnered is never distributed to the people in need of the actual help. It goes to put houses in faraway places for the people who cry the loudest. They can use truth deceptively. Are you ready for that thought? Do you use truth deceptively? Do you tell partial truths, half-truths? J.I. Packer says it this way. He says a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a complete lie. They want to kill my other son, and if it happens, our house ends. Our money is taken. And they may or may not care well for me. How many strings have to get pulled? They've turned David's heart into a harp playing a melody that suits no one in truth. It's all a lie. So her conclusion is thus, they would quench my coal. They would put out the fire. She doesn't even have a fire. She has a coal. And if they do that, then the family is done and she will be left 
with a husband whose name goes no further from the face of the earth. Can the stakes be higher than that? David is a passionate man for ill, we've seen, but for good as well. This is the king of Israel, God's chosen people, and he draws so tenderly loved, filled probably with tears in his eyes. And he says, go to your house. I will give orders protecting you. I will give you basically a piece of paper that says no one can execute vengeance and end your stuff. No one takes your house. No one takes your land, period. David is so moved in mercy to love and care for her. Don't we want kings like that? Don't we want fathers like that? Don't we want family structures that have place for mercy? These are the rules, yes, of a great friend, doesn't live nearby. And his son, pretty flagrantly disobedient often. Find out later there are some medical situations that are part of the cause for that. But this son had to be disciplined over and over and falling asleep over and over and over again. And there was one moment where my friend looked at his disobedient son and said, you broke the rule, and this was one of the big rules. Kids, there are always big rules in your house and lesser rules. Don't prey upon your parents about the lesser rules. Yield to them too. Don't trick them or play it away. Again, be honestly forgiven that your shame would dissipate. But my friend looked at his son, knowing what justice called for. So his son was prepared to receive a just and loving spanking. And his hand was raised. But instead of landing on his disobedient son's bottom, he hit his own thigh. It's one of the holiest moments I know. He beat the tar out of his own thigh that his son would know that the demands of justice can be met and mercy can be given at the same time. Y'all, this is the gospel, yes? He thought about it for so long. I will take the punishment my son deserves. And truth told, he hit his own thigh way harder than he ever would have touched his son. And his son, thoroughly surprised, hearing the whap and not feeling any pain. His son turned and said, what, what happened? Tears falling down his eyes. He says, I love you, and I couldn't give you justice one more time. So I gave your justice to me, and I give you the mercy I have for you. And that left a heck of a bruise on his thigh for a really long time. And his son would come and point at the bruise and say, for me, for me, you love me. I know that you love me because your bruise remains. Dan was inwardly crushed. 
to win the heart back of his own son. And fathers will do that. Fathers should do that. Justice is needed, but mercy also. Everything here is not about truth. It's not about mercy. David, filled with compassion, with all the power of his office, protects this woman from the manipulations and greeds of others. This is what kingly rule should look like. If anyone says anything against you, you bring them to me. There's no card bigger in the deck. This is the ace of spades. And she comes back at him. Please let the king invoke Yahweh your God. That the avenger of blood kill no more. That my son be not destroyed. I'm glad for the mercy you've given me. But I'm not here for my own mercy. What I really want is legal immunity for my son. He's already given her her own protection. She's pleading for her son's protection. Does this son exist? Is this situation real at all? It's a play written by a greedy madman designed to turn David's heart into a harp. So here's David filled with compassion, fully convinced of the story that's being told And verse 11 should scare you. It should scare you because she's using a covenant identifier of God Almighty as a superstitious phrase. She takes this high glory and rips it from heaven and plasters it like a bumper sticker on the car of this whole charade. Can you just say the magic words? Can you sprinkle the fairy dust of God on this? We do that. Don't we? Don't we try and manipulate God, trick God, bargain with God, bribe God, bargain with others, trick others, scheme to get your own way? How many times have siblings schemed one another so that they could choose the movie? So that they could sit on the side of the car that they want? How many times do siblings put words in their sister's mouth because the sister has more favor, she thinks, in the eyes of her father? And the father was dumb enough and, you know, pray victim so that to their situation. I want immunity, verse 11. As the Lord lives, here's David in truth, in power, in glory, saying the thing that she wants superstitious protection with, and he's giving it to her with all its divine strength. She's using it falsely. He's using it truthfully, he thinks. As Yahweh lives, by all the power I have, by all the authority, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. It's amazing. And it's all a lie. 
Here's what the woman really wants. The woman wants immunity for her son as a pretext to set a legal precedent to shame David, expose him as a hypocrite so that Absalom can return with the same immunity. This has nothing to do with anything real. The whole point of this is to humiliate the son. No, to humiliate the king for the return of the estranged son. Watch how she does it. It's so clever. Please let your servant speak a word to the Lord my king. Hey, thanks for all that you just did. Let's forget about that for a moment. And let's expose your hypocrisy. Ha ha! My Lord, can I speak a word? Yeah, speak. Go for it. 13. And the woman says, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. It's all a pretext. It's all to manipulate him to in mercy ruling in such a way that he can then be exposed as not having the same mercy he just showed the fictitious story widow with Absalom. For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. When has the king judged himself? Recently, you start to smell this? Can you sniff it out? It was when the prophet of God came with a story about sheep and rich men. This is the way his situation with Bathsheba becomes exposed. The prophet of God speaking the word of God and the conviction of God falling upon the man of God to the deliverance of that man. This is a mockery form. This is a knockoff, a ripoff. The real thing Nathan did was the Gucci purse. This is the terrible knockoff. Evil always does this. Pay attention. Evil always takes what is supremely good and corrupts it, manipulates it, and twists it to pretend that it's the same thing. Joab must have sat for days or weeks, months or more, hatching this plan to make sure every heartstring is pulled just correctly so that David can convict and judge himself and he can be exposed. And in the shame I gave him, Shame belongs to Joab. But David's the one who's going to have it. And it's not even real. It's not a real precedent. There's no real person. They're trying to invoke Nathan's ministry and pawn it off for their evil scheming. So it goes on and on and on. Verse 17, and your servant thought the word of my Lord the king will set me at rest. So she's got this huge pretext. She lays it out. And then in that moment, she switches gears that her real purpose is about the king, but she doesn't leave it there because that would be too obvious. She Then she resorts back to her own story. And in trying to tell her own story again, she kind of hides the true dagger that she's stabbing him with. Listen to the wisdom of David here. This is discerning wisdom. 
The king answers the woman, don't hide anything from me, anything I ask you. Under the penalty of perjury, tell me the truth. That's what he's saying. And if she lies to him right here and he can prove it, he can execute her on the spot. He's the judge. Tell me the truth. Okay, what's your question? Verse 19. Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? Hallelujah. David sees what's really happening. The circumstances are too good. It's too perfect. It's too polished. There's no room for real human thinking and experience here. As surely as you live, my Lord, she answers. Yes. It's a very long yes. Verse 20. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. Joab knew your heart was against Absalom. This is why he orchestrated all this stuff. And then she says, knowing that her neck is on the line, but my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all the things that are on the earth. <laughs> Makes me want to puke, right? It sounds so flowery and beautiful. It has absolutely no substance. She's totally kissing, you know, you know. The king says to Joab, behold, I grant this, go, bring back the young man, Absalom. David sniffs out the scheme. He totally recognizes and then exposes the true puppet master behind the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. David detects Joab and sees the whole thing as a setup. They are, he realizes, trying to manipulate him into ruling against himself so that they could expose his supposed hypocrisy, just like prophet Nathan had a few chapters earlier. But God's exposing parable is heavenly and effective. Her story was earthly and worldly and apparently not well hidden from David. She's obviously and ridiculously flattering him. He knows it's a ruse. He's unmasked the true villain. He's exposed the true author of the words she speaks because it wasn't subtle enough or, or flawed enough to fool David. So we ask the question, is it manipulative enough to be effective? Yes! David knows the whole thing is wrong. It's all made up. It's a giant lie. And he relents. In verse 21, he's like, yeah, go bring back the young man, Absalom. When he says young man, what he's saying is, I'm going to forget the sins of his youth. This was a two-year plot. David caves in. David relents. He allows Absalom to return to Israel. He does make one decree that Absalom can't remain in his presence. Don't ever let me see your face or I'll kill you. But yeah, come back. David caved in. He succumbed to the orchestrated scheming and deceptions of his political enemy. What's the theological witness of a text like this? People suck. Right? People stink. 
We're evil. We're corruptive. We manipulate. We pawn people. We Manipulation is not ministry. You can take that down as an application of this. Scheming is not service. You might be serving your own ends, you think, but it's not real. Even when it pretends to be effective. If Absalom's coming home and David is extending genuine mercy, why would Absalom be removed from his presence always? Lastly, third application, your motives matter. Your motives matter in all of this. God wants to govern your insides and your outsides. I appreciate your patience today. Last thought. Where's Yahweh in all of this? He's blasphemed. He's rebelled against. David represents God. When you lie to David, you're lying to God. The power and authority of the throne of heaven is given to David. Does he use it perfectly? No. Does he use it kindly here? God has more mercy for you than you would ever have for another person. That's an application of this text. How do I grow in mercy? without compromising justice? How are the rules still upheld and mercy given? Where's Yahweh in all of this? He's eternally patient and working in ways that you can't see. The real man behind the curtain loves you and is glorified even in your weakness because it demonstrates his strength. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we repent. We repent for our schemes and our cunning. We repent from the plans that worked and the plans that failed. Oh God in heaven, would you make us a truthful people? Oh God in heaven, would you take away our sinful pretexts are bribing and scheming you or others. Oh God in heaven, would you come and mercifully show yourself that we might know you and live shame-free as your son has purchased for us. Come, oh God in heaven, and be glorified. Forgive my sin and lead me into true forgiveness of others. May your name be hallowed, no longer blasphemed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people agree.